We're going to come to the Word of God this morning. And uh, as we come to the Word, I was, excuse me, thinking about the summer celebration time. We called our little conference Embark. Um, it was purposely a vague title because we were uh, still, you know, you got to announce it way ahead of time. And we had a couple speakers that were going to come and maybe and they were checking their schedules. And, you know, so we had to say something, but you can't say like to be determined because that doesn't work. <laughs> so we prayed about it and we thought the Lord gave us embark. Um, the reason is not because we are embarking into new things, although that's true sometimes with the Lord. It's, it's like truth is like an ever deepening well. It stays in one place. There's, no, not, there's never going to be a new Jesus. There's never going to be a new God. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. But the depths of knowing him just continually, you hit new, new heights and new depths of knowing his grace and his love. And then all of a sudden you realize that he's so righteous and it's like a new chapter opens up to you on his character and it just continually deepens and deepens. It's exciting, isn't it? So we weren't embarking into new things especially. And yet, from wherever we are, we're embarking into what God has called us to, to remain on steadfast as we're moving forward. It was a great time. And so as we're thinking about that and coming off that time together and, and seeing the Troy people, I was praying about what God would have us do and talk about. And it struck me how the Christian hope and how we live is vastly different than the world and should be. Christians should be distinct in the world. When we think about that, we tend to think about Christians living in a distinct way because they are more moral than other people. And that's true because Jesus said we, that everyone in the world would know his followers by their fruit. So the fruit of obedience looks like a moral people. But quite honestly, there are other moral people around. The, um, all the Mormon people seem to be very moral. They're putting out all kinds of products on family health and being, you know, having a tight family and all these things. And it seems very good. But there's a big difference between the Christian hope and how other people live. And so I want to talk to you about hope, about the Christian hope. What does that look like? How does that make us distinct? Because at the end of the day, you can be the most religious, the most uh, driven, the most careful, the most law-abiding person who's very moral and have no joy and have no hope and not sure. Uh, I met a Muslim friend one time uh, when I was overseas and we were talking about different things and Christianity and all this kind of stuff. And it was new to him to understand anything about love. The concept of God's love was not, it's not there. So if you hear, you know, all the time say Islam is peace, right? Well, he was quick to talk about peace. No understanding of love. Because there's no assurance. No assurance with him. And so he could walk through life daily, devout, trying all the time to appease Allah. And never really get there. There's no hope available to him at all. There's hope in Christianity. Will you turn with me in your Bible, please, to John chapter 11. John chapter 11. <clears throat> John's gospel, and when I say gospel, it's, a, it's, not, it's different than the gospel, the, the good news is the gospel, which is the story of Jesus dying for our sins, rising again, which is actually a much longer story of the whole covenant timeline of the Bible, starting with Adam and Eve, of God's redemptive power and his plan in the world. That's the good news. The good news is God saves us. 
When we say about John's gospel, what we mean is the account of Jesus, in particular, the account of that good news. So little g, big G, this is the difference here. So in the, in the gospel of John, talking about Jesus, it's got a special take. Every one of the gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, have a certain sort of take on what they want you to understand or who they're writing to. This particular gospel of John has uh, a very focused look at proving that Jesus is God, the deity of Jesus Christ. It's an important theme. It's followed throughout. And so this particular story found in John is pointing very clearly to that, but has a special meaning to the people who are there, experiencing it, the people to whom the gospel was first written, and also to us, because we're reading it. This was not written specifically for us. There was an actual audience in mind who read it for the first time. And now we get the benefits also of reading it. It was for us too, but we're later in history. Does that make sense? Okay. So John chapter 11, we all know this story. You've heard it in Sunday school. It's the story of Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead. Now, this is an incredible story for a lot of reasons, more so than just the fact that the shortest verse of the Bible is in this story. And so everybody wants to memorize that because Jesus wept, shortest verse in the Bible, and then people are like, okay, I, I know my Bible. So the Sunday school trick. Any answer to anything is Jesus. And if you know that, you've got at least one memory verse. So that's the Sunday school trick. So other than that, we're also going to see a lot of things. And not only are we going to see the divinity of Christ, because who can raise someone from the dead? Only the giver of life. So God, ready for this, formed man out of the clay, out of the ground, and then breathed life into him, which is different. We don't get that same account on all the other animals and stuff. It's special to man. And so the Holy Spirit entering them, the breath of God entering man, suddenly they come alive out of a mold. And that's, that's important. And Jesus is going to stand and call out to the tomb we're going to read in just a moment. And Lazarus will rise from the dead and come out still bound in his burial stuff. Because just at the word, just at the breath of God, life comes. And so we see Jesus' divinity pouring through this story. But we're also surprised to read about Jesus wept, that little verse, because we also see the compassion of God and the sort of human side with emotions of the Christ man, the God man, who is God, who's taken on flesh. And so we see a range of not only his power, but also his character displayed in the story. And it's powerful and it's important. And we're going to just briefly touch on it, but you should go back and read all of John chapter 11 later because it will expand you in lots of ways. What happens in the story is Jesus is talking to the disciples and uh, the Jews are already upset, especially the Pharisees, the leaders are already upset with Jesus and some of them are already seeking to kill him. And so time has passed and Jesus is telling the disciples, we need to go back and see our friend Lazarus. So he's a friend of Jesus and he's talking to them and they say, hey, he's, he's, we all heard he's ill. And they know Jesus' healing power, that he can heal people, even from a distance, just by saying it, which is incredible. And so he says, yeah, yeah, I heard about that. Let's stay here for another day. And so they stay in the area that they're in. And then Jesus says, Lazarus has fallen asleep. We need to go visit him. And the disciples are perplexed. And they say, why are we, you know, he'll just wake up. It's, it's really okay. And then Jesus explains to them, no, he's died. And we're going to go that you might see the glory of God. It's also a dangerous journey. Because he's coming back to an area where the, where the Jews, the Jewish leaders, have already been sort of quarreling with Jesus and out to get him. So Jesus makes the journey. He comes. On his way, he meets the sister of Lazarus, who comes out and says, My Lord, if you were only here, 
You could have just said some words and it would, have, it would have healed him. And he says, I know, but I've come that you might see the glory of God. And so as he goes a little bit further, the other sister of Lazarus, there's two, Martha and Mary, comes out to meet Jesus. And she says, my sister said you were here. And she's weeping. The people are weeping. And Jesus is so moved to compassion that he begins to weep with them. Does our theology have enough room that Jesus could actually be moved to compassion like that? Sometimes we think of God so stoically. Nothing phases him. And yet, here's the friend of Jesus, that he's actually openly, you know, that's, have you ever seen the crying face? I know you have, because I use it a lot in the church. I don't try to, it's my mom. Some, it's genetic. I don't know. At least I could, I could do that. But the crying face of a person is not always great. You know, very few movie stars can do that and still look composed. Most people, if they're weeping, and not just trying, not one tear, not like stoic looking, oh, one tear comes and then he does something. Jesus is weeping with the people. It's embarrassing. That's a vulnerable thing. Because he actually loves and cares for Lazarus. And Lazarus is really dead. It's not just illusions. And so he's weeping with the people. Let's start reading together John chapter 11. We're going to read at verse 38. This is what it says. Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave, and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for, it has been, for he has been dead four days. Jesus said to her, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. And Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on the account of the people standing around me, that they may believe that you sent me. Then he said to the, when he had said those things, he cried, cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out! The man who had died came out. His hands and his feet were bound with linen strips, and his face was wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. And then the story just goes on because the, the fame of Jesus has grown and the leaders are deciding we've got to do something about this guy. He's even raised Lazarus from the dead. He's got to go. Isn't that so anticlimactic though? Here, you, Jesus said, unbind him and let him go. End of story. How, how incredible. I mean, you, the guy's been dead for, it's one thing, you know, guy, guy falls out of a window or hit by a cart in the street or something and he dies and Jesus walks up and brings him to life. Or the little girl, Jairus' daughter, who's died. The servant comes and says, don't bother the teacher anymore. She's died. He goes, no, she's only sleeping. And she goes and right away she's rise back to life. But four days. Could you imagine the smell when you open the tomb? I don't believe that there was just flower scent. There was there no Glade air freshener coming out of the tomb. Because the guy is already dead. Four days he's been dead. That's a stinky smell. Uh, we had a little pool, one of those, you know, kid pools deals in our old house in Wentzville. And I ended up going out of town or something, and it sort of sat for like a week and a half. You know how that happens. And uh, I came back, and I found a bird in the pool. And it was like, it was gross, guys. It was gross. And it did not smell good. And we've all had experiences like that with stuff on the road, stuff in our refrigerator, whatever. But I'm telling you, in our culture, we actually don't encounter these kind of smells a lot. They're not around us as much as you would think because we are quick to try to deal with it. And these people in this time period 
They're just as affected by the bad smells. And so when they open the, the tomb up and roll away the stone, it does not smell great. The stench of death is actually there. And Jesus, just by saying a few words, his breath just somehow causes this miracle of life to happen because he's God. And we see the glory of God happening as Jesus, who is moved to compassion, does something for a friend, not just because he's a friend, but because Jesus is demonstrating the glory of the Father to everyone around him. And so just by his word, here comes this guy. Could you imagine watching from the tomb, like, what's going to happen? And you can hear the shuffle. I mean, what would Lazarus say? The first thing, I think he probably, get the, the burial cloth off his face. He's like, it stinks in there because it smelled like death. And now he's alive again. Could you imagine? Could you imagine the people standing around and the fame of it? So much so that the Jewish leaders say, we've got to kill this guy. He's got to go. He's a threat to us. This Jesus, not only is he God and powerful, but the compassion, the life, the, the grace that's in him. And for everybody standing around him, what would you think in that moment? Here's what I would think. I will never, never be more than an arm's length away from this guy. Never. I want to go everywhere he goes. I want to be close to him. Every word that he says, if a word that he says can bring somebody to life, I want to hear everything. I want to know it all. I want to hear the jokes around the campfire. I want to hear everything. I never want to be away from this guy. Wouldn't you think that? Why would you think that? Now, he's God. He's the source of life, right? But also beyond that, you have a hope that burns in you because every one of us is destined for that stench and that tomb. But if he can change it, if he can do something about it, if he's got the power to change death, I got to be around him. I got to know. He's the only source of hope for my family. He's the only source of hope for me. So imagine then in the future, because right after this, Jesus goes into Jerusalem and it starts the chain of events that's going to lead to the cross, which you understand was always the plan. So when Jesus went to go rise, raise Lazarus from the dead, he knew that he was walking into a chain of events that was preordained that would result in his death in a tomb. And so calling out Lazarus, he was going to change places with him. That's incredible. But imagine now you're Peter, the apostle, the disciple, who says to Jesus, where else can we go? You have the words of life because he's witnessed it. He's seen it. And now his Lord is being taken away in chains. His Lord, his teacher, his life source is going away. And Peter, in his vain attempt to stay, comes to the little courtyard in the middle of the night just to be a little bit close. Because burning in his heart is the same thing that would be in all of us. I got to be where he is. But Jesus is going to suffer something that he can't go through. And so Jesus, beaten, Jesus with the thorns piercing his, his skull, Jesus, his back looking like hamburger, Jesus carrying the cross to the point of exhaustion when he falls down and they have to have another man drug up to do it, Jesus who hangs on the cross, Jesus who has blood streaming from his hands, his feet, the blood of the God of life who became a man in our stead, falling onto a tree and onto the soil. It's, it's incredible. It's incredible. And you're watching and you think at any moment, at any moment, he can call down 10,000 angels 
to raise him up from that tree, to have judgment on all his enemies, he can do it, and he doesn't. Instead, his mouth is silent. Why is it so important that his mouth is silent? Because he can speak the words of life. All he has to do is say one word. With one breath, he can change everything. And instead, like a lamb to the slaughter, he spoke not. And he goes to the cross, and the disciples are there. And the very hope of life, not just their careers, not just their reputations, not just their families, not just their livelihood, their hope of life is hanging on a tree. And everything in me, if I were them, would be, just say something. Just say something. Anything. And instead, Jesus looks down, and he sees the, the disciple, John, and he says, John, this now is your mother. And he cares for his mom by making sure, because he's going to die. It's really going to happen. It's not just going to be an illusion. And so he's, and he, he's making arrangements for his death. He's crying out for God to forgive the people who are putting him to death on a tree. And then he cries out, it's finished. And he breathes no more. Jesus dies. Could you imagine not just the terror of that moment? Because when Jesus dies, the earth shakes, the sun goes dark, the, the temple curtain, which is three feet thick, tears in two pieces. There's people raising from the dead walking around. This is a terrifying time. A terrifying time. So terrifying that one of the guards even says, surely this is the Son of God. It's terrifying. And yet he doesn't say any words that will save him. What would you feel in that moment? In the darkness of that storm? You know, uh, we've had a lot of rain this year, haven't we? A lot. It's the ground is saturated. And the water's coming up. You know in those really big storms, they never, it's always weird when it rains when it's sunny out. Isn't that weird? It's usually raining when it's really dark. When you see those really big, not like, oh, fun, summer thunderstorm. I'm talking the really big cl clouds coming in. When you see them coming in, usually you don't feel comfort. You don't. Why not? Because they're going to do some harm. Something's changing. Something's happening. This is not normal. This is not bright time. And that's what it looked like when Jesus hung on the cross. Darkness fell on a bright day. And so in that moment, looking up, you can't help but feel utter hopelessness because the God of life, the one who has proven himself with healings, with raising people from the dead, has himself now died on the cross. How, how is it possible? Utter hopelessness. You know, sometimes I, I, looking back on this story, it's funny to think about what the disciples must be thinking and feeling. You know, they kind of scatter. They come back together, hiding in houses and hiding in rooms because the rest of the authorities are still after them. What would they talk about? You know, it strikes me that there's no faith, very little. They basically just know Jesus died. That's all that happened. It's not until later, it's not until Jesus actually rises from the, the, the dead that suddenly they go, Rem remember he said, remember he said those things? He said three days. Do you remember he said three days? What, three days? Hey, we all heard it, right? But before that, they're just, they're just lost. They're just lost. It's a dark time. But it's not the end of the story. Because Jesus, he really died for us. He really paid the penalty of sin. Because when he died, he didn't just die on a cross. 
He didn't just die the punishment for a criminal, but God poured out all of the wrath of sin, all the wrath of disobedience. I explained to my kids this way. Jesus took all of the eternal spankings for the whole world in one time that was so great that his life was the cost. Oh, okay. To pay for our disobedience, to pay for our rebellion, to pay for our hatred. He took all of it. And spiritually, he took the punishment. And in doing so, he also threw down principalities and powers. And so Jesus, in doing his work, was not just, oh, he died and nothing happened. He died and threw down those principalities and powers. But he really died. And then in one moment, the breath entered his lungs again. In one moment, for all time, he spelled out victory for all of us. You understand, in Genesis it tells us, especially in the story of Noah, it says that life is where? Do you remember? Life is in the in the blood. But where did life come into us? In the breath, right? Life is in the blood. You understand, we are born and made alive by the breath of God. But it's the blood of God shed for us. It's the blood of God put on us that brings real life and health and holiness. Because we weren't just made alive by the breath of God. We were declared to be his, and through his blood, we were made clean. And life comes through us. And suddenly it's not just breath that we feel anymore, but there's a new heartbeat that comes when we give our lives to Jesus and submit to him. When we say, Lord, forgive me of my unrighteousness. And we see that he paid the penalty. And all of a sudden it's like the, the blood has washed us clean to be a new person because we are made new creations in Christ. And when he raised to life spiritually, we raised to life with him. And now our breath is not just declaring God's glory, but also our blood and our body, it becomes a heartbeat for God because we are following Jesus, the source of life, the only one who's able, the only one who is worthy to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. Turn with me, please, to 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1. I have page 1015. My brother hates it when I say that. It's helpful, though. There's Bibles in the back, by the way, if you forgot one. 1 Peter chapter 1. Let's read at verse 3. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3. This is what the Apostle Peter says. Remember, he lived through all these things. He saw Lazarus raised from the dead. He denied Christ. He saw Jesus rise from the dead. He met him. And then he was restored by Christ as well. Incredible. Because he had denied his Lord. 1 Peter 1 verse 3, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, that perishes though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls." This is not the guy who hid in a dark room. This is not the guy who was 
denying Christ. This is a guy who understands the life of God. And how does he express it? He express it, expresses it in that we have a living hope through, God, through Christ. And in his resurrection, it guaranteed for us that we would also be like him. That at his return in the end, when he comes back, we will live too. Our hope is not just that we know God. Our hope is not just that we're moral people. Our hope is not just that we're kind people. Our hope is not just that God will provide for us, which he does. All those things are great. Our hope is in Jesus, the King of Kings, who died and rose again. And if he rose again and he has the power of life, it does not negate any of the things that he's already shown us as a character. And instead now we can trust him that as he lives, we will live too. And there's a living hope in us that springs up into life and joy inexpressible, even in the midst of suffering. Because we have a king who is alive, and it guarantees for us we will be alive with him too. That's a great hope. Here's the problem. A lot of times we want to come to people, and we see some guy. Let's say we meet a guy at Walmart, and he looks like he has been on meth. Right? Teeth are all messed up. This guy needs Jesus in our thinking. And he does need Jesus, don't get me wrong. What, what do we say to him? Do we offer him the hope of the gospel? Or do we come at him with morals? If you live this way, God will bless you. If you just change your heart, man, if you wore a suit, you'd get hired. Let me teach you how to live. I can help you. I'm better than you. That becomes, a lot of times, our declaration. Or you just need God's love. If you just have his love, it'll be okay. Whatever's going on in your life, Jesus loves you. True. But there's so much more. Because what we carry is the message of hope. It's why the gospel is called the gospel, the euangelion, the good news. It's the gospel of the good news that Jesus died for us, that we don't have to go through that punishment, that as he lives, we live, that we are not destined to just rot away until the stench goes everywhere or fade into nothingness, but instead that there is hope to know God, the God of righteousness, who we should never be able to approach, but instead because of the blood of Christ, we are brought into relationship with him, and not only relationship, indwelled by his Holy Spirit, empowered for life, given everything we need for, for life and godliness. We are filled beyond ourselves, beyond our own capacity, with the life of God that comes out in hope and joy and peace, and then we become agents of restoration for the kingdom, which looks like righteousness, peace, and joy, because everywhere that Jesus went, Every place he walked, he came to the tomb with Lazarus, crying, weeping, defeated. Oh, it's awful, everything. The stone is rolled away. The stench is so great. But just by his word, peace, joy, it just comes. And he accomplished righteousness by his own blood. It's incredible. You understand, that's your heritage. That's who you are. That's who God's made you. He hasn't made you his police. He's made you his ambassadors. But it's easy for us to get turned around into, man, if I can just change the programming on TV. And you know some of the programming on TV should not be on TV, let's be honest. But if I can just change that programming, man, if I could get a hold of a radio station and get everybody in St. Louis to listen to that radio station, then it would change everybody. Guys, we're already there, people, other churches are already doing that. Joy FM's doing good. We don't need the other radio station right now. We need Jesus. We need the hope of the gospel. Peter later on is going to tell us, always be prepared to give an explanation, an answer for the hope you have in you. 
Because the thing that's different from your very moral neighbor at work, they're very moral. They love their kids. You love their kids. They're willing to sacrifice everything. They are at baseball tournaments in their select league every weekend, spending $1,000 to make sure their kid can get a scholarship to school. What are you doing for your kid? They're, they're sacrificing. They're moral. They're suffering for things. The difference is, where's your hope? Is it in the baseball scholarship? Or is it in Jesus Christ, the author of life, that just by his word, if you come to church with me this Sunday, I'm telling you, by the word of God, if you hear his voice, it will be life to you. Let me restore hope to your broken experience. Let me take everything that you have, meth addict, and instead of living in dependency for that junk, come to the God of life. He can restore anybody. We have hope in Jesus. There's real life. That's a great message, isn't it? You're the carrier of that message because God himself has called you to be his priests, to be his people, that you would go forth and the hope that you have would spring out of you. You know, I, I, um, I love my kids. I have five now, somehow. <laughs> Praise Jesus. No, we're, we are so blessed. And um, it's funny to me. I was just talking to the Schmids and, and Bleckers today. And they said, how's the baby? How's she sleeping okay? She's five weeks now. She's here somewhere in the building. <laughs> Lisa's probably listening in the nursing mother's room. Um, she's doing great. She was big. She's 10 pounds, 3 ounces when she was born. She's like 15 pounds now. She's huge. Ch I mean, she's an Adelini. So she's really good at eating. You know, it's good. She's doing everything she's supposed to do. And she's a chunk. And she's sleeping great, praise God. You know, we've had a couple nights that are rough. Because everybody does with a newborn. But generally, overall, we've had a lot of peace. The hardest part's been the other four. Because they're up at 5.50 in the morning. You know, hey, what are you? let's go to the park. Let's go to the park. Like, guys, go back to, give me 30 more minutes, please. I've been up six times tonight. You know, but generally, sleeping great. And she's, and healthy. And the other kids have been healthy, praise God. And doing what, well. Lisa, the delivery went fantastic. She's doing great. And people say, oh, how's the baby? And something in me wants to be like, oh, this is rough. It's rough. You know, she's, oh, she's sleeping, you know, uh, but not great. You know, I hardly sleep at all, which is kind of true with the other kids. But I want to downplay the blessing of God because I want to identify that other people didn't have as great of a, an experience. And I want to be able to say like, oh, yeah, woe is me. You should probably buy us lunch, you know, <laughs> or whatever. I'm not, I'm not, I'm joking. But I'm saying like, you, you want to, everybody does that. How are you doing? Oh, I'm busy. I'm so busy. I mean, I played golf yesterday, but other than that, I've been so busy. I could not, I watched six hours, binge watch a television show the night before, but I'm so busy that I can't even get my oil changed in my car. It's been three months. And we all do that. Why do we do that? Because the temptation is to downplay the hope. The temptation is to downplay the real blessing because we assume if we're not millionaires, we're not really blessed. It's not true, folks. The Spirit of God has given you a living hope through Jesus Christ who died for us. And you are an ambassador of life and hope and peace and joy and righteousness. And when somebody says, hey, how's your marriage going? You'd be like, you know what? We have our moments, but it's great. God's made us best friends. We're dependent on him all the time. There's moments where there's no money in the bank account, but he provides. I don't understand. I can tell you overall the track record has been faithfulness, blessing, joy. I got to go on a date for the first time in three months with my wife, and it was fabulous. We had no kids. 
We just went to the movies. She fell asleep. And we ended that date, and we were like, this is, this God is so good to us. And it's real. You don't have to be fake. It, people will know if you're fake. What, what's the reason for the hope you have? Let me tell you about Jesus. You ready? Turn with me. You know, this is, that, that's, this is real life now. And it's not a radio station. Although that, you know what? I love radio stations. I, that's great. It's real. And I've been saying this for a while now because I believe God's doing something. The people that he's already put in your life, the people you already know, are the people he's using you to influence. But if you downplay his blessing, or you choose by your attitude that you're not going to walk in his grace. No, Lord, I won't do it, right now. I won't do it today. My three-year-old is really good at that. He's been begging me, begging me to drive in the pickup truck that we have. And then today I said, hey, we're going in the truck. And he was upset because he wanted to ride with Nora's friend that's visiting today in the other car. I don't want, I don't want to go. I want to go with Mommy. Like, dude, get in the truck. <laughs> you know, but we, isn't that funny how in the moment when the father does something, these attitudes spring up. In the moment where somebody asks a question, we need to downplay it. Don't downplay the joy, the hope that you have, the rest that you have. If you go home today and watch golf on television, and you can tell somebody at work tomorrow, I had a great weekend. It was restful. I went to church. I was blessed. I watched golf. It was great. You weren't busy? That's what they'll say. Because that's what everybody says. Hey, how are things going? I work. The boss. My wife. Finances. That's everybody. I'm serious. Ask the peer. Here's my favorite. Hey, bread co-worker. How you doing today? I just, I'm here. Or 30 more minutes, so I'm doing great. Everybody says that. How about, you know what? God called me to this job. Kind of sucks, but he called me to it. So I'm doing it. It's great. I don't like waking up at 4 a.m. But you know what? It's paying the bills. God's faithful. People, what? What? You see what we're talking about here? Real life. I want to remind you, God has called you to a living hope. And it looks like the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And it looks like our hope that you also will be raised with him. As he is, we will be. We will not just face death forever. It's a reality now until that day when he comes back and we're called back into his presence and given new bodies to live with him. That's what the Bible says. Not flit around in the sky with a harp. The resurrection. It's, it's real life. And it's good. And then in that day, camping won't be 105 in the humidity. It'll be the glory of seeing God's creation and walking with him and knowing him and his presence. And wow, it's going to be so great. I can't, I don't even, can't even fully explain it. But when he comes, wow, it's going to be so great. Amen. And before that, if I die before, I'll be with him. And then when that day comes, I'll be with him. Because I don't want to be an arm's length away from him. Because everywhere he is, it's life. Every word he says is life. Everything he does is life. Because our testimony is him, him crucified, him raised, him ruling. It's him. Glory. That's the hope. Yeah. Isn't that great? Yeah. Praise God. Let's pray together. Father, thank you. Thank you, Lord, that you are a God of hope. That you are the God of life. You're the God of restoration. You're the God of peace. Lord, thank you that you sent your son to die on the cross for us. God himself. Lord, you, you died for us. We are so blown away 
by your kindness to us, God. Lord, your mercy is so great and it's new every morning. Lord, even if we mess up today, it's new because our salvation is not based on how great we are or how moral we are or how perfect we are, although these, those things are important. It's based on you and how perfect you are and how moral you are and how loving you are and how merciful you are and how gracious you are. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for life, God. I pray for my friends here today that they would be filled with joy inexpressible and full of glory, that they would know the living hope surging within them. And, Father, that you would train our tongues to be faithful to your testimony in everything we do. In the mighty name of Jesus, I pray. Amen.